right? Notice, please, verse 1. It says, Joash was seven years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebiah of Beersheba. And Joash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada, the priest. And Jehoiada took for him two wives, and he begat sons and daughters. And it came to pass after this that Joash was minded to repair the house of the Lord. Now, Joash is the king at seven. Now, the one leading before him was a wicked woman. Her name was Athaliah. We mentioned just briefly last night the, the bad example of the wicked woman. But here in Athaliah's case, she was an idolater. She was a murderer. She hated God. She wasn't interested in anything, and she was a power player. In other words, she wanted control over everything. And she lost control of everything. And now Athaliah is destroyed by godly, jo by godly Jehoiada and... and, and and through his leadership, Joash becomes king. Now, he's king at seven, and it was by default because there was nobody else. He was the next in line. Jehoiada and his wife had kept him and saved him. Joash was seven years old. But let me just pause and say, sometimes we look at Josiah, who was eight, and Joash, who was seven, and say, wow, wow, this was wonderful. But let me just say, it was by default because there was no other good leadership in line and in the throne. It was partly due to Athaliah's wicked actions. But, but in the Bible, whenever women or children led, it was not a good sign, it was a bad sign. Even if they were good. Deborah was a good judge. But the only reason she led was because there was no man with character to step up to the plate. The only reason Josiah and Joash led was because there was no man with character to stand up to evil and step up to the plate. But now Joash is leading, and Jehoiada grooms him, and Jehoiada prepares him, and Jehoiada teaches him, and shows him the right way, and guides him, and counsels him. Now Jehoiada was in his 80s when Joash came to the throne, in his 80s. And the scripture tells us in 2 Chronicles 24 and verse 1 that he was, Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. In verse 4 it says he was minded to repair the house of the Lord and he gathered together the priests and the Levites and said to them, Go out into the cities of Judah and gather of all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year and see that ye hasten the matter, howbeit the Levites hastened it not. And the king called for Jehoiada the chief. And said unto him, Why hast thou not required of the Levites to bring it out of Judah and out of Jerusalem the collection, according to the commandment of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and of the congregation of Israel for the tabernacle of witness? For the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, had broken up the house of God, and also all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord did they bestow upon Balaam, which was a false god. And at the king's commandment, they made a chest and set it without at the gate of the house of the Lord. And they made a proclamation through Judah and Jerusalem to bring into the Lord the collection that Moses, the servant of God, laid upon Israel in the wilderness. And all the princes and all the people rejoiced and brought in and cast into the chest until they had made an end. And they just kept filling this chest and emptying it, filling it and emptying it, filling it and emptying it until the house of the Lord was repaired. In other words, Joash made a priority of the house of God. He made a priority of worshiping the one true God, which is what we all ought to be making a priority of. I was instructing my boys today, two older ones, and on, on what the Bible teaches about the local New Testament church and how important it is and how vital it is that we make it a priority in our lives and how it's God's plan for the age right now, how vital it is. And many people misunderstand the church. 
They think I can do whatever I want, or they've had a bad experience with something called a church in the past, so they take it all, as I mentioned last night, with another kind of teaching, and they throw it out the window. I don't want anything to do with a church. Well, just because there's a perversion of a truth doesn't mean I can discard that truth altogether. So there's all kinds of crazy ideas about the church, but boil it down, the church, the meeting of God's people together as a body, is the dwelling place of God, and it is a priority to the Lord. It's not second or third or fourth. It's very important. And if I'm going to fulfill Matthew 6.33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, it's going to be somewhere around or surrounding or involving the church, a local New Testament body. So vital for us to understand. And Joash, though he wasn't a part of the church, he understood that the temple, it was a priority. It was a centerpiece of Israel, and he was going to prepare it. He was going to get it looking the way it needed to be. Well, he does this, and God uses him in a mighty way. But look at verse 15 and notice what the scripture says. It says, but Jehoiada waxed old and was full of days when he died. And 130 years old was he when he died. Wow. 130 years old. <laughs> That's amazing. Now, he was 130 years old when he died, and they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel both toward God and toward his house. Now, notice what happens in verse 17. After the death of Jehoiada came the princes of Judah and made obeisance to the king. Then the king hearkened unto them. I want to divide our thoughts into four sections tonight. Number one, I want us to notice the sinful drift. Would you say that with me? The sinful drift. Would you say it again? The sinful drift. Number one is the sinful drift. And it happens immediately in Joash's life after Jehoiada, the high priest, dies. The chief priest, he dies. As soon as he dies, the current becomes mighty strong. In Joash's life. It says the princes of Judah came and made obeisance to the king. That means they bowed to him. No doubt flattered him. Filled his head with all kind of mush. And then the king hearkened unto them. It shows me a few things about him. First of all, I want you to notice his anchor. You know what we find and discover in verse 17 about Joash? He was anchored to Jehoiada, but not Jehovah. He was anchored to the older generation while they were alive. But when they were gone, shoo, cast off all scruples, cast off all taboos, cast off all the old ways. While they're alive, listen to their counsel, show them respect, heed what they say, uh, honor their wishes. But when they're gone, throw it all to the wind. Trade it all in. Trade it all in for just a mess of pottage. Trade it all in for the flattery and the praise of the princes. Now mark this. With flattery, there comes some expectation yeah. all the time. Yeah. The flattery of the strange woman brings the expectation that you will bow to her temptation. The flattery and shekels of, uh, of the government comes, with it comes the expectation that you're going to bow and acquiesce to them. And these princes would be like the modern-day politician. Now, let me just pause and say, by politician, I don't mean somebody that's involved in the government. There are some politicians or some government officials who are not political. 
They're not politicians. There are some government officials who are good men. But there are some government officials who are nothing but politic, poli, poli, political and politicians. Nothing but it. By the way, there are some political preachers. There are some political businessmen in this town. Always jockeying for authority. Always jockeying for influence. Always jockeying for leadership. And they'll have no scruples about them. They will say whatever needs to be said so that they can get another vote. So that they can get a little higher up on the rung. You know, politic, uh, politics or politician comes from two root words, poly meaning many and tick, which means blood-sucking insect. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I have no respect for a politician in the area of ministry or in the area of business or in the area of government. Because a politician doesn't, isn't guided by principle. They're guided by their desire to get to the top. And here in this passage, that's what these princes were. These princes were just after a little notoriety. They wanted to be the one influencing Joash. Now Jehoiada was gone. They wanted to be the one that guided him. And it shows his anchor. You know what else it shows? It shows his adoration. Now, your true character and godliness is revealed often when those above you and ahead of you fade away, pass away, slip away, or just are not present. Here Jehoiada is gone. His anchor's gone. Here comes the current of the flattery of the politicians and the princes of the day. And notice his adoration. Watch this. If you're worshiping God, you won't be swayed or accept the worship of men. If you're worshiping the Lord, you're not going to be guided by what's the wind of the hour. You're going to be guided by what is principled. What does the Bible say? What is right? Most of my problems in life can be solved if I'll just go back to answer this question. What is right? What is right in this issue? What is right in this matter? Not what does so-and-so think. It's not who's right. It's what's right. right. What is right? What does the Bible say about this? Is there some clear statement concerning it? Is there some underlying principle concerning it? What is right? I must guide my life by the Bible. Not by what men think. Not by what men say. Not by what is popular in the day. Now, this is very important in a church body because so many times a church body can have a thousand influences. And I'll tell you, sometimes the pastor has little to no idea of what those influences might be. It might be an ideology like this. The only thing that matters is numbers. Time out. The only thing that matters in a church is not numbers. In fact, that's way down on the gamut. That's not what determines the pleasure of God or the blessing of God. Pastor Ed Nelson years ago was pastor out in uh, Colorado, out in Denver, and some people came and they, they uh, saw his ministry, and he took them around on a tour, showed them the big gymnasium and the Christian school complex, and they show, he showed them the auditorium that seat, seated about 1,200, and uh, they said, oh, Brother Nelson, what a, what a great blessing that you have from God. God sure has blessed your life and ministry with all these buildings, and he stopped them right there. He said, what? He said, buildings don't determine the blessing of God? They don't determine whether I have the power of God. You know what that was? That was a wise man. See, sometimes it's a false idea, like numbers are the only thing that matters. Or pragmatism, whatever works. Whatever works, we'll do whatever works. And do you know what happens when we do whatever works? We just follow fads. Now, independent fundamental Bible-believing Baptists are notorious for following fads. (laughs) 
I'm just being straight because I am one and have been all my life and have chosen by conviction to be one. And I'm not going to be anything else by the grace of God. Uh, at one time, it was a fad to have a Christian school. All kinds of Christian schools popping up all over the place. I'm not against Christian schools. I'm for it if they're done right and if it's led by the Holy Spirit to start one and to have one. But at one time, that was it. No, everybody have a Christian school. And then at one time, the fad was, let's have a Christian college. Nothing wrong with a Christian college. I'm 100% for Christian education. I'm not against it. I'm for it. But that seemed to be the thing. All these Christian colleges popping up all over the place. I'm for it. I'm not against it. At one time, it was the bus ministry. Hey, let's everybody have a bus. I'm for reaching people, and I'm for reaching them with the buses. Well, I cut my teeth on the bus ministry when I was in 10th grade. I thank God for every moment that I spent out knocking on doors and getting kids to come on the buses. But see, watch this, folks. Watch this. As Christians, Bible-believing Christians, we are not dictated by what is popular or what is faddish or what pragmatically works. We are driven by what is right. Because if we're driven by what is right, then when the fads wear off and when some new fad comes along or when it's not popular to be a Bible-believing independent Baptist, but it's more popular to be a compromising, uh, take Baptist off take away the pulpit and get some little acrylic thing and, and, and preacher don't, don't be preaching really hard just kind of get some skinny jeans and hold a latte and talk to us when that becomes popular watch this when that becomes popular we say hey wait 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 time out we're, we're going to do what's right we're going to be driven by dictated by the Bible the Bible's going to be our fulcrum you see if we'll come back to the Bible we won't let the drift of the world sweep us away and is it just me or, or is there really a drift going on? Yeah. I mean a shift and a drift away from Bible principle, away from the truth of God's word. You know, I was preaching at a camp a few summers ago up right on the border of New Jersey and Delaware right there. And it was actually just maybe 20 minutes up north of where George Washington crossed the Delaware. And um, we would go, it was an island camp. We would go up on the north end of the island. We'd get some tubes and we'd just tube down the river. And you know, when we got out about ankle deep, the current was nothing. We could handle it. Knee deep, it was a little bit more, but still it was nothing to speak of. Waist deep, we could feel the current. Chest deep, we had to fight against it. Now, folks, let me say, there are a thousand currents ready to sweep whoever and whatever out of the church and away from God and away from truth. A thousand currents. Sometimes they might be personal temptations that come our way. Sometimes it might be some internet phenomenon preacher. But, 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 stop, stop, stop. Let me just pause and just preach a little bit. Uh, th this is a family. This church body right here is a family. Amen. There shouldn't be anything that you allow or anyone that you allow to wedge its way and worm its way in between you and the preacher that God has given you. Certainly not an internet phenomenon who's got 50,000 followers on Facebook. Don't, don't let that happen. You, you say, this is my family. I'm going to love my family. I'm going to love the Word of God. Sometimes it might be a radio preacher. Sometimes it might be a book. Sometimes it might be an idea that you have because of your upbringing. Who knows what the influence is? And you know, it's very important when we come together, and remember how I said something about sending texts? It's very important that we throw lines of love constantly around each other. And when any one of us see any one of us drifting, we throw another line of love around and say, come on back. 
It doesn't even have to be confrontation or a rebuke. Sometimes it involves that. But it doesn't even have, it just, let's go out for coffee. I just want you to know I love you. I care about you. Why? Because the devil, sorry, bastard that he is, is doing everything he can to throw lines of destruction around us and pull us out with his current. Is there anybody besides me here tonight that just hates the devil? I can't stand him. And when I think about how he's tried in my life and in my family and in my home and in my ministry to destroy and undermine and uproot and pull away, I just can't hardly stand him. And folks, look here. There is a drift. And if any one of us think that we're immune to it, we are a wide open candidate for it. Who'd have thought that Joash, the guy that had made a chest to raise money to repair the temple, would go down this road? I mean, literally days or less after Jehoiada, his mentor, had died. There he goes. Well, who's that? It's the king. The king? Joash? Yes, Joash. Look at him go, just sweeping away down the current. What, well, does he know there's a dam out there? And does he know that there's a, he's going to go overboard? Yeah, I don't know if he does or not. Oh, somebody needs to rescue him. Yeah, I agree with that. It's a sinful drift, number one. Number two, I want you to notice the sinful drift, but number two, notice the seer's declaration. The seer's declaration. Would you say it with me tonight? The seer's declaration. Would you say it again? The seer's declaration. Look at the prophets and the preachers that God sends to Joash. The Bible says in verse 18... This describes in more detail the drift. They left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served groves and idols. What? A grove would be like a place up in the mountains or on the way up into the mountains where there were trees and they would cut a semicircle of trees out. And maybe in that semicircle, initially they would build an altar to the one true God, 12 stones. They would offer sacrifices to that one true God. But after a while, those whose hearts weren't loyal and completely in love with the Lord, they would come and bring their idols. And after a while, there were sacrifices made to the one true God, as well as idol worship. And then after a while, the altar would be broken down, and the idol worship would remain. That was what a grove was. Well, there were groves, and there were idols, and they left the house of the Lord to follow that. Verse number 18, And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this their trespass. Look at the next verse. Oh, this is powerful. Verse 19. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them again unto the Lord. And they testified against them, but they would not give ear. See it? Number two is the seer's declaration. I want you to notice several things about it. Number one, it was plural. The seer's declaration wasn't just one message from one preacher one time. It was plural. It says he sent prophets unto them again to bring them again unto the Lord. And they testified against them. There were several. And I'll tell you this, whether you recognize it or not, or whether you see it or not, whenever you and I go down the road of temptation and sin, whenever we drift away from the Lord, and you, sometimes the drift can come very slowly and imperceptibly. We just think, oh, well, it's not that far. I mean, the dock's right over there. I've got it in case I need to swim back. But if we let it go unchecked and unheated and untethered, pretty soon we say, wait a second, boy, the dock's farther away than I expected. 
And I'll tell you this, once you get away from the things that are right and true, it's a whole lot harder to get back than it is, to, to, than it, than it is just to stay put. A whole lot harder to get back into church once you've gotten out of church. A whole lot harder to get back into the habits of serving and worshiping and loving and following the Lord than it was. And let me tell you something else. You never get back into the will of God where you got out of it. Ever. Ever. And here in this passage of Scripture, it says that he sent prophets to them. Prophets. Usually it's a mom, a dad, a grandma, a preacher, a Sunday school teacher. An evangelist. Somebody. Sometimes it's a friend. You know, sometimes God may even send a prophet who's not even saved to preach the truth. God did that with Jonah. Sent him the unbelieving shipmaster. And said, why are you a prophet of the one true God? Why are you doing this? Running from the Lord? It was plural. Notice number two, it was powerful. It says they testified against them. Now, I know it may seem hard to believe, but we preachers don't wake up in the morning thinking about the hardest message we can preach. We really don't. Usually we're just going through a text and it preaches itself to us. And we say, oh, wow. It's a help to me. And then we mull over it and think about it. And sometimes we think about it for months before we actually preach that message. And when we get up and we preach it straight and strong and hard, sometimes people say, oh, man, he's dead on tonight. Oh, man, I can't get away with nothing and come to this church. (laughs) Well, the preacher's not trying to be hard. He's not trying to be rigid. He's just trying to preach the word of God. And I'm going to tell you, to be honest with you, most of the time it's never easy to preach a hard message. It's never easy for a preacher to come. Hey, if we... (laughs) I told pastor the other day, I said, we're in the wrong business. I said, we should just become compromising preachers. That way we don't have to work one hour a week. (laughs) I mean, just cancel the Sunday night service and cancel the Wednesday evening service and just go easy. I mean, we could make a whole lot more money doing that. I mean, what in the world are we trying to hold the line strong and hard and lift up the bloodstained banner of Jesus Christ and call people to a life of commitment? I mean, man, what are we thinking? We should just become compromising, easy street preachers. It's not easy for a preacher to be that way. It's not easy for a preacher to hold a strong stand in a culture that has gone all to the devil. But, but watch, when a preacher does, it's powerful. I mean, <laughs> Brother Stanky, I wish that I could say common sense, straightforward Bible preaching was more common than it is. But it's not. I, I mean, honestly... I go in some places and I preach a straightforward, simple message from the Bible or a gospel message, and people say, oh, Brother Dwight, that was such a blessing. You, I mean, you, that, that was what? And, and I was, most of the time I'm saying, well, it wasn't that great tonight. I can know when I'm on and when I'm off, and I think I was more off than on tonight. But, but, but a straightforward gospel Bible message, it's a lot more uncommon than you think. Now, those that have been in independent Baptist churches for a long time, uh, we, we, we get it often and a lot, and we should never take it for granted. But, you know, if I had time, I wouldn't do this because I don't have time. I'd go to visit all the different denominational churches for a whole year and just take a journey and write a book about it. I guarantee you, you wouldn't find a whole lot of straightforward Bible preaching messages in most places. And that's tragic. It ought to be common. Common sense, straightforward Bible preaching where you walk out of the service and you say, well, there's no doubt what that preacher said. 
I mean, I mean, he laid it down on the bottom shelf where all of us could reach it. I wish he'd go a little lighter from us sometime, but boy, he was laying it low, laying us low tonight. It's powerful. It's unique. You can sense the presence of God when a preacher is just crawled right into your house and gone through your closets and thrown out the idols right in the kitchen floor and said, what's this? And you're called on it. Look at verse 20. This is really something. And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. All right, so he's not just going to tell us that this was plural and it was powerful, but notice it was personal. It was personal and passionate. Look at it. Upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, came the Spirit of God, which stood above the people and said unto them, Thus saith God, Why transgress ye the commandment of the Lord that ye cannot prosper? Because ye have forsaken the Lord, he hath also forsaken you. Now let's just pause for a moment and consider this. We don't know exactly how old Zechariah was, or at least I don't. Maybe there is a specific age. But Jehoiada was somewhere in his 80s when Joash became king, when he was seven. Now Joash is in his 40s. It's possible that, that Zechariah was like an older brother or maybe even father figure in Joash's life. It's very possible. I'm, I'm uh, 44. My I'm the youngest of five. My dad, my dad is 84, 85 this year. Okay? It's very possible that, that Joash had Zechariah as the one between him and Jehoiada to look up to. Jehoiada like the grandfather figure, 130 when he dies. Uh, Zechariah like the father figure, or at least older brother. So when Zechariah steps up to preach, it's not some stranger. He steps up to preach, and the Bible says he stepped up above the people. Do you know why? But by the way, that's a Bible principle. Platforms are not something that we, we have in a church because we couldn't think of any other way to do it. Platforms are actually a Bible concept, not stages. Platforms and, and pulpits, by the way, are a Bible concept. Pulpits. There's a move today amongst preachers to get rid of the pulpit. Huh. Only heaven knows why. Thomas Rainier, a famous preacher, author, Christian author, is, is, just wrote a book, Who Moved My Pulpit? And, and instead of talking about why the pulpit is important, he's talking about, now preachers, if you want to move the pulpit, you need to win the affection of the people and make the decision at the right time and get consensus. No, 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 no. The pulpit is a Bible concept, and the platform is he stood above the people so that he could show the people this is an exalted message. It comes from heaven above. I'm standing up above so that not I'm above you, but so that I can show you this is important. Watch now. He's preaching and he's, he's calling it. Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord that ye cannot prosper? Oh, 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 if only we preachers could somehow convey this message. Oh, if only the people in the pew and the people in the city and the town and the county could get it. Look here. If you transgress God's word, you cannot prosper. It's impossible. 
When you disobey God, there's not going to be anything but trouble and heartache, maybe a little bit of pleasure on the front end, but in the end there'll be guilt and shame and disappointment and havoc, all because you transgressed the commandment of the Lord. So he says, why? He's even asking a question that will incite their conscience. Why transgress ye the commandment of the Lord? I ask that to you tonight. Why transgress ye the commandment of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? It's not the preacher's desire that you fail. It's not his desire that you do anything but succeed. But he knows this. The only way you can succeed is if you meditate in the word of the Lord constantly and do what it says. Why transgress ye the commandment of the Lord that ye cannot prosper? He says, because you've forsaken the Lord, he hath also forsaken you. Every action precipitates another action and a response. And your response to God of lifting your fist in the face of God, rebelling against his word, results in judgment. Because you've forsaken him, he's forsaken you. That's the seer's declaration. And by the way, preaching is declaration. Uh, listen carefully. It's not debate. It's not dialogue. It's not discussion. It's declaration. Thus saith the Lord. Well, you hope that they're going to hit the altar at the end of this message, but look at verse 21. It says, They conspired against him and stoned him with stones. Now, I used to read this passage and just think, well, it must have been the princes that were behind this. Or if it wasn't the princes, it was the people. Surely it wasn't Joash. Please tell me it isn't so. Not Joash that raised money to repair the house of God. Not Joash, but it was Joash. Look at verse 21. They stoned him with stones at the commandment of the king in the court of the house of the Lord. Now listen to me carefully. Number three is the sad decision. Would you see it? The sad decision. Would you say it with me? The sad decision. Would you say it again? The sad decision. Watch this. It was Ignorance. It was ignorance what they were doing. Wow. Thus Joash the king remembered not the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but slew his son. And when he died, he said, The Lord look upon it and require it. Those were the last words of Zechariah. And by the way, Zechariah was called to record by the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. When Jesus confronted the Pharisees, he said, you Pharisees, your fathers, and you by your own confession and identification with them, slew the prophets, even Zechariah, who died between the altar. Now, I'm just going to park my wagon for a moment and preach. Because there's a whole lot of people in a whole lot of churches, are you listening to me? That have picked up stones to stone the preacher. And God help everyone that has a stone in their hand against a preacher. They stoned the preacher in Jeremiah's day when the king refused to listen to what he had to say and threw him in a pit and would have left him to die had it not been for the godly servant named Ebed-Melech. They stoned the preachers in Elijah's day when they stoned the preachers led by Jezebel herself. Sometimes they stone the preachers by refusing to come. Sometimes people stone the preachers by starving him out and cutting his salary and hope he'll, he'll be the first one to, to, to yield. 
Sometimes they stone the preachers by sitting in the pew week after week and folding their arms with the attitude of, bless me if you can, preacher. Sometimes they stone the preacher by never once hitting an altar, even though they know good and well God's spoken to their heart. Sometimes they stone the preacher by spreading a bunch of dirty rumors around town. Sometimes they stone the preacher by arguing and debating and criticizing. Just read an article yesterday about a preacher in California who committed suicide. I know three individual preachers who have committed suicide. Now, I'm not saying that's right. And I'm not even saying that action is justified. But God help any church member or anybody in town that precipitates it by their wicked critical spirit. Critical spirits, someone says when a preacher hears criticism, it's like dying a death of a thousand cuts. Stoning the preacher. Stoning the preacher. We don't like what the preacher says, so we're just going to disregard him. Sometimes they stone the preacher. Are you listening? By having barbecued preacher at Sunday afternoon lunch. Hmm. You know, my dad was involved in two separate ministries where he ended up disagreeing with some philosophy in those ministries. Some philosophy of the preacher. Are you listening to me? I never heard about it till I was long in the ministry. In fact, even to this day, my dad will say, Pastor so-and-so said such-and-such, and he'll give a good truth. Pastor so-and-so said such-and-such. You know why? He wasn't going to criticize the preacher in front of my young years because he knew my young years were impressionable, and he didn't want me to have a bad view of God and a bad view of his prophets. Thank God for that foresight. Thank God for that wisdom. Stoning the preacher. Stones in their hands. Stoning the one who had given them the truth. Stoning them, one who had given them the message of right so that they could avoid judgment. What a sad, sad decision. It was not only ignorance, but hear it, it was ingratitude. Look at the verse number 22. Thus Joash the king remembered not the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but slew his son for four decades. Joash had been brought up under the tutelage of Jehoiada and his wife. For four decades, Joash had been shown which way was right. And now, because of a few flattering princes and conniving politicians, he throws caution to the wind and chooses that instead of four decades of depth and right and truth. What a tragedy. Notice 2 Chronicles 24. Look at verse 20. Three, I want you to notice number four and finally, the sure defeat. The sure defeat. Would you say it with me? The sure defeat. Boy, he was right off the tee. He was probably 325 yards. But boy, the next hit wasn't so great. And the next hit was even worse. And he didn't even make it up on the green. Didn't even make it into the hole. Look at what it says in verse 23. It came to pass at the end of the year that the host of Syria came up against him. And they came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the princes of the people from among the people and sent all the spoil of them unto the king of Damascus. For the army of the Syrians came with a small company of men, and the Lord delivered a very great host into their hand, because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers, so they executed judgment against Joash. I want you to consider a few things. Number one, the pagans were victorious. The pagans were victorious. The Syrians came down. And by the way, many times in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, to send judgment, God used another nation, an invading nation. 
America would do well to sit up and take note. An invading nation. Why? Because of the, the other nation's idolatry. God sent an invading nation, Syria. It was the pagans that were victorious. I want you to notice the princes were vanquished. Look at what it says in verse, number, in verse number 24. It says, so they executed judgment against Joash. Wow. It says in verse number uh, 23, they destroyed all the princes of the people from among the people. <laughs> well, that didn't last very long. You could argue it lasted less than a year. What were these princes? Uh, you know, when the Supreme Court passed down the ruling a few years ago in 2015 that the homosexuality was okay, I said, they better enjoy it while they can. Yes. Mr. Antichrist that's going to rule the world for seven years, that doesn't even equal two presidential terms. He better enjoy it while he can. And if you're here tonight and you're choosing a path of wickedness and drift away from God, just go ahead and enjoy it while you can because it won't last very long. The homosexuals better enjoy it while they can because they'll have all eternity to think about it. And the Bible says here in 2 Chronicles 24 that within a year, these princes, they didn't have their power. They didn't have their influence. They didn't have their way or their day for very long. Oh, sin's so deceptive. I want you to notice that the pagans were victorious. The princes were vanquished. Watch, the potentate was violated. Look at it, verse 25. And when they were departed from him, the Syrians, for they left him in great diseases. I'd like somebody here that's a deep theologian to explain to me what that means. Maybe biological warfare isn't as modern as we think. What does it mean they left him in great diseases? Whew. For his servants, his own servants, conspired against him for the blood of the sons of Jehoiada, the priest, and slew him on his bed, and he died, and they buried him in the city of David, but they buried him not in the sepulchres of the kings. Watch. This chapter or story starts out with a high priest who was not a king buried with the kings, and it ends with a king who was a king not buried with the kings. The one man died in honor. The other man died in shame. It says here that there were diseases, there was a conspiracy by the women, he was slain on his bed. How pathetic is that? I mean, he didn't even die in battle, not even with a fight. To die in bed, you have to be having some kind of disease that maybe was propagated by this invading force, and all the servant has to do is come and put a pillow over your head or a wet rag over your head and suffocate you, die on your bed. How shameful is that? He was not buried in honor. Now, I want you to think about these three things. This is so impacting to me because you know how old he is right here? In his 40s. I'm in my 40s. And I'm ever increasingly aware, Pastor, of this fact that at any moment I could fall. At any moment I could disregard the Lord. At any moment I could dishonor his word. He was in his 40s. Listen, listen. It was totally avoidable. This was totally avoidable. And finally, it was totally solvable. If when the prophets came, jo Joash would have had enough sense to say, you know, they're right and I'm wrong. Better yet, God's right and I'm wrong. God, would you forgive me? God would have forgiven him. If when Zechariah got up and said, you're wrong, why do you transgress the commandment of the Lord? Joash could have said, what was I thinking? How wrong and stupid could I have been? Oh, God, forgive me. God would have forgiven him. And the Syrian nation wouldn't have invaded, and the judgment could have been averted. It was totally solvable. 
was a good driver. Man, hit it sharp and long off the tee. But he didn't arrive very well. Hey, you know what Joash didn't have? Watch. He didn't have the example of Joash. You know what he didn't have? That much of the Bible that you and I have. We don't have any excuse for not finishing well. Would you bow with me?